was so moved by listening to uh, James talk last night, and especially at the end of his talk when he said, uh, be really kind to your mind, that really at any moment you could realize freedom. And in that moment I know that everyone is as thrilled as I am to hear that, because it rings true, we know it. And Jack the night before saying, at any moment, we could just let it all go. It's totally thrilling. And be realizers of freedom, not become free. Realize that we have been free all the time and not realizing it was being caught in a dream. And in those moments when I hear that and I'm thrilled and I think you're all thrilled, I have the thought, I wonder if everybody's thrilled. I wonder if everybody really believes it. Whether everybody hears that in this moment. And what it's like to hear it and not get it, or hear it and get it. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about faith and confidence. Not as... uh, unwavering qualities like you get faith once and for all and it stays there but as a growing quality and foundation of mind and confidence also as a growing capacity in fact uh, I just looked down at my notes and I got up this morning so inspired by that whole idea of talking about it that At five o'clock this morning, I wrote all these notes for this talk. And during the day, I've done lots of other things because I've needed to be other places. And I sit down, and suddenly I can't remember what I meant by any of these notes. (laughs) (laughs) Because some of them are very cryptic. In my way of making cryptic notes, which I usually do five minutes before a talk, not so many hours before... So I want you to know that I begin this talk with a lot of faith and confidence (laughs) that as I go along it will reveal itself to me. (laughs) That particularly cryptic notion about there isn't anyone who wasn't ever free. We're always free and we are just from time to time waking up and realizing it. I think it's a fundamental religious truth. They say that in different religious traditions. Say it in Zen practice in the ox herding pictures. We discover that the ox was never lost. Say it in different ways in Christian practice and you were never separated. The Torah portion for this week, if you're an observant Jew, is the, uh, the portion of Jacob's dream the important line of which is the line in which he wakes up from his sleep and says, God was in this place and I didn't know it. And I think that they all say the same thing. And we read them over and over and over again. We read Sufi stories over and over and over again. And in the beginning, when I asked my friends who read Sufi stories as a practice, read the same story every day. It hasn't changed since the day before. I say, no, I read it and a new insight arises. People read the same scripture year after year. We don't say, well, I finished that same old scripture, now I'll read something else. It's the same scripture. Sometimes I think when we give the same Dharma talks over and over and over again, I know in the beginning days when I was just starting to sit at retreats and people would begin a talk and I'd think, oh dear, the same old talk. And I know this talk myself. I could give it myself. Since I have a good verbal memory, I probably could have in certain cases, especially when the examples and the stories didn't change. I think it's the same old talk over and over and again. But it's fine that it's the same old talk over and over again because we say things and we say things and we say things that are spiritual truths and all of a sudden there's exactly that right chemistry of mind where all of a sudden, we get it. And in my own case, I've often thought to myself, wow, why didn't they say that before? Just like that. If they had said that just like that before, I'd be way ahead of where I am in my level of understanding. 
And of course, people had said it thousands of times before, probably, but I didn't have the ears to hear. I had a lot of trouble with the uh, concept of anatta, that really a crucial piece of understanding. The I got it about uh, impermanence. I, I did get it that everything changed and that everything was insubstantial. And I really did get it about suffering being the result of clinging to that which was essentially insubstantial. But I didn't get it about anatta, about selflessness. Sure felt to me like there was somebody in there having all this experience, thinking these thoughts, owning these feelings. So I would sit at retreats and I'd hear perfectly eloquent teachers explain about anicca, I got it, dukkha, I got it, anatta, I didn't get it. And I thought to myself, they're wrong. They're right about the other stuff, but they're wrong about that. And it was fine. I, I never. I, one of my rules is not to ask questions, those kinds of questions, because I figure if I didn't get it the first shot, I won't get it the second shot either. There, there isn't any point in explaining it to me. And I figured if I ever got it, I'd get it. Which turns out to be really important, not so much in terms of having gotten it, but in terms of there, there, there's a, a capacity or a chemistry of mind that needs to be present for us to go from knowing something to really knowing something. I used to say that I think that there are two kinds of knowing. There's knowing with a small K and knowing with a capital K. People know with a capital K, they really know. And in those days, perhaps I should be embarrassed about it, I used to say I don't talk a lot or think about a lot about faith. Faith isn't very important to me. If you know something, you know it, and faith is extra. Um, and I used to back that up by talking about the Kalama Sutta, in which the Buddha went around and talked the Kalamas and said, uh, don't believe something just because if someone tells it to you, even if they're a trusted friend, even if they're a revered teacher, even if they're the Buddha, don't believe it unless it's part of your experience. So I would back up my denial, disavowal of faith by saying, look, the Buddha said faith wasn't necessary. The Buddha said faith was necessary. I made that part up. But (laughs) what's changed for me very much is that I talk a lot about faith these days. Talk about garden variety faith that we could manage, that life is manageable. A Martin Buber phrase where he said, life is incomprehensible, but it is embraceable. And I think that's really what the Buddha said as well, that we have the capacity, that the heart has the capacity to be open to all of the challenges of life and to maintain itself and to really reflect its essential nature of loving, compassionate response. So that's one level of faith. Maybe that's, maybe that's enough of the, about the level of faith at this moment. Because I want to talk a little bit down the line about crises of faith, which I also have, in which I'm convinced that I've made a mistake and we don't have the capacity to manage. I think it's important to get that anatta piece, not so much for its emptiness part, but for its interconnectedness part. Emptiness is a peculiar name and non-self is a peculiar concept. But interconnectedness, I guess it was Jack the other night who talked about mud rising in different forms. It's such a good image of each of us, our own particular mud bubbling away, arising and passing away. Fundamentally, all made out of the same stuff of consciousness and all linked to each other seems to me really crucial because it really is the foundation of compassion, really recognizing each other as ourselves. Didn't do me too much good knowing about anatta at times that uh, I was upset in my life. It's an important thing to say. 
that knowing, even knowing the truth about that there isn't anyone there who owns the emotions or who made the thoughts, owns the thoughts, feels like that. And on the emotional level, it feels like that. And sometimes using um, a spiritual truth to try to leapfrog over an emotional truth or cut around, make an end run out of emotional truth doesn't work out. It makes trouble. I remember, uh, oh, maybe five years ago when both my husband and I were particularly interested in a teacher who was teaching the teachings of Ramana Maharshi, very much a non-self emptiness seeing teaching. I told him one day about an upset I was having about how I had felt affronted by one of my children, something that they'd done, who knows what. And I said, I'm, I'm really angry with Emily for whatever it was that she did. And he said in a very cosmic truth kind of voice, he said, where is the I who is angry? And I said, don't give me any of that guff about... <laughs> Where is the I that's angry? I know that there's no one here who's angry, and I know that there's no one there who's the cause of the anger. Nevertheless, anger exists. I even know that the anger is temporal, that it is insubstantial, that it has no firm basis, and that it will pass. Nevertheless, at this moment, it is present and troublesome. So it's really important to really be thinking about what's the faith? The faith in that moment is that it's temporal. It'll pass. Not to deny it. Form matters. Emotions matter. The ultimate spiritual put-down, I think, is when someone is feeling upset or disturbed about something in their life and somebody else says, in the sphere of the cosmos, what does this matter? The truth is, in the sphere of the cosmos, everything is insubstantial. But we don't live in the sphere of the cosmos. We live right here. And our lives matter to us. We are particular. I was flying out of Hartford, Connecticut, recently, and uh, I got a newspaper in the airport as I left. And a banner headline uh, was the day before his big experience in Hartford, which was in a lake just on the outskirts of town, a fisherman had fallen out of his boat, or the boat had overturned or something. And he had been rescued, and he was alive. But it was a very heroic, exciting rescue, and the rescue squad was there, and the whole banner headline of what had happened, and big interview with the police and the paramedics, and it was the most exciting thing in Hartford that this particular local person had survived this big event. And uh, down on the bottom of the front page was a story about a uh, fire that had happened in uh, a subway in the capital of Azerbaijan that morning. And 300 Azerbaijanis had died in a subway fire. But he was this big headline about the one man from Hartford and then the 300 Azerbaijanis down here. And I thought, that's really appropriate. I mean, every tragedy is a tragedy, of course, but we feel the ones that are local to us more than the ones that are far from us. It's hard to hold the whole sphere of the cosmos in the same emotional proximity as the people to whom we are related. So I tell you that whole thing because I want to talk something about how we are changed in this practice and how we come to have faith in the efficacy of this practice and confidence in ourselves as being able to do it. Because the person who's related to that person in the boat, that's a huge tragedy or a possibly averted huge tragedy. To talk about not being able to, that since we do not live in the sphere of the cosmos, how to live where we live with heartfelt reaction to what we're living and to somehow be able to maintain ourselves and with some sort of balance and equipoise. 
I think, in other words, that the that the spiritual visions, that are sphere of the cosmos visions, the religious understandings about karma and about how things come to pass, are really crucial to hold. And in the middle of them, we live our lives with our particular passions and our particular attachments. <coughs> we respond viscerally. There's a book that's um, enjoying quite a lot of attention these days, and I think I, which I'm happy about. It's a book by Dan Goldman called Emotional Intelligence. You can probably see it's way up on the bestseller list. And fundamentally, I think, talks about how mindfulness practice makes us emotionally intelligent. makes us sage, wise. And it talks about there being two levels of, uh, at least two levels of brain reaction. And the inner level of uh, of what he calls the reptilian brain, the limbic brain. The limbic brain operates on the same level as reptiles, as lizards. It reacts to, uh, in a self-preservation way. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a line that says the reptile makes only one decision, has only one sentence, one thought, when anything heaves into view. And that one thought is, do I eat it or does it eat me? <laughs> and makes a decision on the basis of that, am I frightened or do I attack? On top of that limbic brain, what we all have, is more elaborate cerebrum and more possibility for wise reflection so that when the person that we're in relationship with comes home three nights in a row much later than what they said, and the limbic brain says, "Uh uh-oh, they don't love me anymore, and starts to get mad and gets all prepared to have a fight about it, that one hopes that the more mature cerebrum will say, wait a minute, the facts in this situation are just that they're coming home late. We don't really know yet what the cause is and is able to cause us to say, sweetheart, I'm a little alarmed about the fact that you're coming home late every night and my big alarm is that you don't love me anymore. Could you explain to me how come you came home late? That's a very emotionally intelligent thing to do. And it requires the moment of appreciation. What's the truth of the situation? The truth is coming home late. How do I feel about it? Frightened. What's the wise response? Asking about it. That's what mindfulness is. James was talking about that great story with Adam yesterday about Adam growling at him in that affrontive way and him getting mad about it. And then sometime later thinking to himself, he's nine years old. (laughs) That's the mindful correction of that situation. The first response is the limbic brain, I'll fix him. (laughs) Somewhat later along down the line, the mindful response is, wait a minute, he's nine years old, he's in an individuation process, this is actually healthy for him, he loves me. All of those elaborations which take the moment of mindfulness. James's case may be five minutes of mindfulness. See, I think the exciting thing about being a human being is that we have that possibility. That we, we have bodies. We are animals. We have limbic brains. We have self-preservation devices. We leap without thinking out of the path of onrushing cars, we don't think it over, a car coming, what's a good response, <laughs> probably be a good idea for me to get out of the way. We just leap out of the way. We duck when someone throws something at us. It's good that we have that limbic response. It's also um, thrilling to think that we also have the capacity of responding like a Buddha, wisely, and thoughtfully and carefully and sensibly in a way that doesn't create any more problems in the world and in fact heals some with our response. 
we actually, all of us are bodhisattvas on the way to becoming Buddhas, that we could think of our lives as being dedicated to that. That really is a great hit of faith for me, that we have that capacity. So I think what, what I've been hoping to say is that we get trapped, more or less, into the visceral, immediate response, like, I'll fix him, and then maybe catch it if, if we're lucky. There are two reasons that we get trapped. One is that we have viscera, and we are strung that way in the way that responds. There's a tremendous little piece of information in Dan Goldman's book. It's really um, wonderfully uh, 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 informed with scientific information about the limbic brain and the limbic response system, about the snarl system. In, you know how animals snarl? That if they're startled dogs, they'll snarl. And it's to frighten off someone who has frightened them. And that uh, my husband and I were talking about people we know who have perfected the snarl response. <laughs> that uh, I know lots of people who say, my partner is a master of the look. Doesn't have to say anything, but gives the look. The look is a sort of latter-day sophisticated interpretation of the snarl. But it's the snarl in a look. Mm, we could really frighten somebody with that look. We could play sometime. We could say, turn to the person next to you <laughs> and give them the look. But everybody's probably in good mood now, so you couldn't do the look. But you have to. So one reason is we have viscera. And the other reason is we get so trapped in the local view that uh, one of the things about the cosmic view, about in the sphere of the cosmos, what's really the truth, can sometimes be used as a tremendous spiritual put-down, can sometimes be used to get in the way of us dealing with the emotional truth of the situation, but is also absolutely necessary if we're going to live in a life. If there was no way to look from another vantage point and say, things come and go, people are born and die, everything fades, there's a temporality about every single thing, transient are all conditioned things, the Buddha said, that if we didn't have that perspective, living in a life would be too hard. You know, those, those really tragic bumper stickers that had a certain prominence a few years ago about life is terrible and then you die. If you don't have uh, a cosmic perspective or a, a, a spiritual perspective, a religious perspective, it's very tragically difficult to live a life. So to somehow live with the two of them in balance or informing themselves, not to stay trapped in the spiritual view, in the, so to speak, spiritual cosmic view, so that we don't deal with our lives, but sometimes we get trapped in that local view and we really get demoralized by the sense of my life is terrible, look what's happening to me, rather than life is amazing. This is my story at this point, but life is amazing. Look at all these stories. For a room full of 60 people here with 60 stories, it's incredible, really. So I think there are two things. I believe, that's a better, that's a better terminology for a faith talk, I believe that two things happen as a result of doing this practice. And incredible two things, considering that this practice is a, doesn't make any scene at all visually. You know, here we are sitting so quietly. It's, a, it's thrilling to me to think that we are becoming totally transformed on the inside. And on the outside, it doesn't look like much is happening. But inside, I think two things are happening. And they address both of those two ways in which we are trapped. One is, I think we get another view. We get another view. Every once in a while, we get it. And James or Jack or me or Eugene or anybody says, you know, we really are free. There isn't anyone who's not free. We say it again and again in varieties of different ways that freedom is here right now, in this moment, available. 
it's here. It's not only available, it is what's true. The only thing that has to happen is realization of that truth. And for each of us, every once in a while, we totally, totally get it. Lose it again, but totally, totally get it. I think what happens in that moment is that here comes the truth and it meets that place in us that knows the truth and they go zing. And often people say to me, you know, I heard that line and I felt thrilled and I felt it in my body. And I think it's because the truth came in to meet that part of us that already knows. So that's the part of we get the right view. And the other part is a part that I believe, I believe, happens over time, and I think it happens to the viscera. I think we get smoothed out. I think if we saw each other's visceral system, we'd see that we are smoothing out over the years, that our emotional system is smoothing out. I think sometimes it's maybe the, 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 uh, one of the reflections that happens when people debate about different paths, like uh, my understanding of uh, Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen, and the Zen people here might have to correct me at some point, but that Soto Zen seems to come down in the, on the side of, it is just practice, it's just sitting, and in the sitting comes the transformation. Rinzai seems to me to very much stress it's in the seeing. It's in the seeing comes the transformation. And I'd like to say it's in the both that comes the transformation. I asked my friend Miles once recently, who has a strong devotional practice and a strong prayer life and a strong study life, and I said, uh, Miles, do you... uh, study before or after you pray? And he said, yes. (laughs) And I think that's the answer. It's it's all and. Actually, I was was thinking about making a difference between faith being uh, that conviction that it's true, that peace is possible, that really this is all okay. We can do it. It is workable. It is embraceable. In fact, celebratable, if that's a word. And that confidence is maybe different from it in the sense that confidence is a sense that I can realize it. Because I think that that's the thing that a, a stumbling piece for people sometimes. People sometimes think, well, I think it's true. Dharma sounds right. And all these other folks will get it, but not me, because I haven't got it yet, or still have pain in my heart, or I'm not a good yogi, or whatever that means. I hope I get a little chance to talk about that, because people have different ideas sometimes about what being a good yogi is, and it would be a good thing to talk about. But Confidence, I think, is different from faith. I think that we get confidence a lot from just the circumstances of our life. Maybe we're born with some sense of it. Maybe it's karmic. Uh, I like to think that we get it from our parents, from uh, really being um, reassured or validated in certain ways. Uh, um, I watched it uh, a few years ago. Uh, Oh, I was so pleased when my grandson Colin was here the other day and you all got to see him sit up here. I was thinking about confidence years ago when Colin was about two. I took him to a shopping center. We spend the day together in those days. We really were doing it once a week. We'd spend the day together. And on this particular day, we went to a shopping center. And uh, I had hurt my back for some reason, so I couldn't lift him up out of his car seat. So I said, I unbuckled him and I said, okay, Colin, I can't pick you up, so you have to get down by yourself. And for a two-year-old to stand up in a car seat is a complicated thing. Stand up, turn around, creep back down, turn around again 90 degrees, come down the side of the car. But he did it all very carefully, painstakingly, got down all by himself. And when he was all the way down, I said to him in genuine appreciation, I said, Colin, 
what a big boy you are. And he looked at me so earnestly and he said, I are. <laughs> and, and it was such a moment of my sense of, that I, I was pleased that he had that hit of confidence. I was pleased that I was responsible for instilling that hit of confidence. I went home, I told everybody in my family because I thought it was such a cute story. And we began to use it as a password. We, anytime anybody said anything good to anybody, say, that was wonderful, that, uh, that meal that you cooked. What a terrific cook you are. I are. Everybody was saying, I are. And I began to think about how terrific it is in our growing up lives. And when people say to me, how should I teach Dharma to my children? It's one of the things I say about just a sense of confidence. I are and I can manage leads, I think, in some way to the greater sense that life is what it is and I can manage that too. It's an important link. I learned a little bit more about confidence in my practice from being with Upandita as a teacher. Upandita had a wonderful teaching style, which I like to use with people who like to use it. And his, his style was that you should come to an interview and say what was the leading end of your practice. And come and you say, in my clearest practice, in my clearest sitting, this is what my experience is. I'm with the breath, and then I'm with the breath, and then thoughts arise, and then this happens, and this happens, this happens. I see this, I see that. Or in my clearest walking period, this is how it is for me. When I am clearest during the day, this is how it is for me. So it was a tremendous liberation. I did not have to say, yesterday I took three naps, or I had a tremendous period of discouragement. That Well, he was not interested in the discouraging end of the practice. It's not so helpful, the discouraging end. He's interested in the leading end of the practice. I say yesterday, as I sat, I saw this and this and this. He would say, "Okay, look a little closer. Try to see this and this and this in between this and this and this." So then you get a big hit of confidence. Oh, I saw that. I could see more. And you look. And my sense is that the practice trails along. Here's the leading end. Here's the trailing end. And if the leading end moves along, the trailing end is going to come along with it <laughs> without all that discouraging talk about the naps or the crises. And so I like to help people when they come for interviews to see what's the leading end and to really not to see what isn't there, but to see really what is there. We get so frightened by the difficult times that we blow them up in the mind or we allow them to blow up in the mind and then we don't see other really wonderful things that are the leading edge. Somebody in their interview yesterday said, finally for a period of time I had this wonderful calm and balance and equanimity or whatever it was, but it was some wonderful state. And so I just got it all together, and then I lost it. And here I am, back again in my grumbling mind. Blah, 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 blah. And that's the problem, is the grumbling mind. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What we learn from that is, in that period of time, when it was clear and balanced and filled with poise and spaciousness, you really had a direct insight of the third noble truth of the Buddha. Peace is possible. That's a really important insight. So let's label that. Let's notice it. Let's say, okay, for a while it was just okay, and then boom, terrible again. In that period, we saw something. And then we saw, in fact, so that's an insight of the third noble truth of the Buddha, but then it all fall apart again. Okay, that's an insight about impermanence. Nothing holds together. Let's just see it as what it is. This is an insight about that. This is an insight about that. It's all... (coughs) Pregnant with insight. There isn't a moment of your experience that is not pregnant with the possibility of waking up in that moment. We are waiting for the good, sublime, the quote, so to speak, quote, good, sublime moments when we're sitting perfectly at peace and poised when then some realization of the truth will emerge. But really, every moment, 
is a presentation of truth. If we don't evaluate it as a, in terms of I'm doing it right or wrong or it's pleasant or unpleasant, and say, what is the truth of this moment? What's the truth of this moment? And I'm so excited when I listen to people in interviews because I, I see directly in front of me how this is working, that somebody heard, as I did with thrilled response, the words, the war is over. That was such a thrilling line from Jack's talk the night before. Get that the war is over, that all the wars that we are churning and continuing to churn are stories. They are history. The war is over. And if we tell it to ourselves gently, without recrimination about where was I, that I didn't get it, that the war was over, but sweetly, like in those stories, say, excuse me, I salute you, I have good news for you, the war is over that we can, with great joy, stop fighting. It's one of those moments. And the realization in the person who told it to me is that the war in her particular life about abuse or continuing abuse doesn't have to happen anymore. Not only in terms of the history of the war, but in the possibility that in current or future relationships we perpetuate the war. It doesn't have to happen. We get insights when we look closely about non-separate self in ways that are totally mundane. Sometimes we think that it's going to be some revelation. Non-separate self are those moments of complete mudita. When somebody said to me the other day, I was outside walking and I saw a woman looking at birds through looking glasses. And she looked so totally wonderful. I was thrilled. I was filled with happiness. That's a moment of realization of connectedness. We look at someone else's plain experience. We are filled with happiness. We have really touched each other in some way. It's a moment of mudita. Someone told me a uh, compassion story yesterday, and I said, can I tell that story? Because it's a personal story. And they said, sure. So we teach each other through stories. So it's all right that I tell you the story. By the way, I ask everybody, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story? So uh, just so that you know that I am not making anybody uncomfortable by these revelations. Really, when I want to say something, I ask. So someone said talking about the role of mindfulness and clarity and how it changes experience to be able to be present. said, my father died not so long ago, and he was old, and he knew he was dying, and I knew he was dying. We were open about it, but not everybody else in the family was ready to admit it. It made it really possible to be with it that I could face that clearly, that I really had the wherewithal to be with it with tremendous presence. And I needed to take my father to uh, the Mayo Clinic. And uh, he was sitting in a wheelchair, and I wanted to put his shoes on. He was the sort of man that had always taken care of himself. And so to do something with him was a tender and a sensitive thing. So I asked him in full awareness of that, would it be all right if I put on your shoes for you? And he said, yeah. He said, I put on his shoes and I was tying them and I was completely there. And I knew in that moment why Jesus had washed the feet of the apostles. And I think the important piece of that story, which comes after that, is that the thrill of that moment the moment of perfect faith that there's a way to be in which our experience is just what it is and it's infused with presence or filled with the divine or however you want to say that, is that we can then call it up in moments of um, 
waning clarity. And remember that moment where we saw with perfect faith or understood with perfect clarity and that it works. One of the things that I told that person who said, you know, maybe I'm playing games. Maybe it's a trick to trick the mind. It's a great trick. (laughs) That one of the things that we talk about in practice is a thing called skillful means. That's a very skillful means. We trick the mind into brilliant clarity. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's a waking up trick, like sitting still or bringing the attention to the breath or listening to a Dharma talk. They're all tricks. They're waking up tricks. They're very good tricks. A friend of mine told me... um, that it um, was in the middle of his first uh, mindfulness retreat, four or five days into his retreat, where he said, I sat down to uh, eat a meal. And he said, and I looked down at my plate of food, and I absolutely knew why we make a blessing before we eat. And this, I can tell you that story But in each of you, it will resonate for you differently because it will be at a different moment. For Ted, when he ate his food, or for this other person when she tied the shoes, or for you in some other place, or for you in some other place. But I am absolutely convinced that for each of you, there has been not one moment, but many moments in which you knew absolutely that life was embraceable, that the heart could hold it, that you could do it, that this is the path to it. That's why you're here. So without knowing the moment for each of you, I know it was there, many moments probably, for each of you. So we all have crises of faith too, I think, or perhaps some of you don't, but I do. Um, Times when I get up and uh, for one reason or another, I don't get it that life is embraceable or manageable. Looks to me impossible. You know, it's really important to think about the energy of doubt, which the Buddha described as uh, a slippery energy. Because I think the presence of doubt is the absence of faith. And from time to time, it's as if the view that I have of truth and life and its embraceability slips. Like sometimes you get a, a, a viewfinder in, a, in, a, in, in binoculars and then you brush against it and then the view gets blurred and you don't see so clearly. That sometimes my view slips. And I'm not holding it right anymore. You know, I think the expression, I didn't have my head screwed on right. Sometimes I feel like my head is not screwed on right. One time last, a couple of years ago now, I had a uh, uh, huge crisis of uh, faith. One morning, doubt attack is what I think of it. I got up one morning in a big doubt attack. And nothing had happened the day before as a particular preview to that doubt attack. Uh, I had heard some sad news in my family, but not amazingly sad news. And um, It was autumn, so it was getting light a little later in the morning, but not that much later than the day before. And, but for one reason or other, I got up, and I just felt terrible. And I, I live up in Sonoma County, and I... Uh, I was uh, at home with my husband and a friend of ours, good friend, and both of them my spiritual confidants, and the friend said, how are you? And I said, I'm terrible. Uh, I think I, I'm a fraud. It's not true that life is embraceable and that we can manage it and that there's an end to suffering or that there's a path to the end of suffering because it's too hard and we weren't meant to hold this much pain and the organism can't do it, and it's all broken, and everything is dying, and it's a downward trip from the, top, from the beginning to the end, 
and a whole tremendous litany. I'm sure my friend was quite surprised. My husband, it's an old story. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of periodic crisis, but for the friend, and, I, and you know, my, my friend is also a spiritual teacher, and, and I said, and what's worse is I'm going all around the world telling people peace is possible, you can open to it, the end of suffering is a possibility, and I'm a fraud. And I thought to myself, a little voice in the back of the mind said, Sylvia, this is not such good behavior. This is maybe not the most polite or something, but too late. I really lost it. <laughs> Meantime, I'm making breakfast and scrambling eggs and carrying on and crying. And both of these two people, did not. neither of them tried to disabuse me of my view. Nobody told me a great spiritual truth. Uh, nobody told me anything. They just listened to me do my whole number. I did my whole number. We sat down, we ate breakfast, I carried on my same whole number. They sat, they ate, they listened. I knew they were listening to me. They said things like, uh, got any more of those scrambled eggs? <laughs> Want to pass the salsa, please? <laughs> and I kept on, and then we finished breakfast, and then we washed the dishes. A half hour later, my friend said, uh, want to study a text? I said, sure, why not? And it was just gone. It was like a storm that had blown in and blown out. It was a storm that had blown in and blown out. And what they had done for me, which is actually the antidote to uh, crises of doubt, is that they had sustained me. The, in, in, the, in Buddhist texts, the antidote to doubt is sustainability. I had sustained it in my awareness as long as it lasted. And they had provided sustenance for me by letting me do it as long as I wanted to do it. And by being there for me as I did it. I was kind of being witness to my doubt. And then by and by, just like a thunderstorm comes in, goes out, and then the mind slips back into place. It's like screw the head back on. Say, oh, okay, here I am again. It is all broken. It is all temporal. Nothing lasts. Transient are all conditioned things. And that's just the way it is. We can manage just fine with that. That's just the way it is. That's not a mistake. That's just the way things are. It's okay. And sometimes it brings with it sadness and sometimes grief and real disappointment. But the great good news is that the heart has the capacity to hold that. That's a tremendous piece of great good news. And we discovered, each of us, as we sit here on these zafus, on these chairs, day after day, everybody here has storms. They roll in, they roll out, they roll in, they roll out, and we keep on sitting. And as we keep on sitting and we sustain in our attention the truth of those storms, we are smoothed out. I, I have this view about um, kinks in the emotional system that if we could see us from many lifetimes worth of kinks, of all the traumas and all the, um, all the challenges that we have endured, I remembered yesterday when I was sitting with someone who was describing for me some energetic experience in the body where every once in a while, for lots of people, not for everybody, this is a really strong sense that there was a, just a big block of strong energy in the body and it was so uncomfortable. And every time I get to talk about this with a student, I have to tell them the whole story that went behind it because we have a funny backstory about years ago. I said to Jack when I was experiencing something like that, felt to me a huge knot. And then every time I paid attention to my breath, I'd experience this huge knot right in the middle of my heart. And I would writhe, actually, with that knot. And I talked to Jack about it, and he said, in, uh, he said, that's a karmic knot untying. And I thought, I didn't know about that. And that. That seemed so odd to me 20 years ago to hear about a karmic knot untying. But okay, he's a teacher. I sat and sat and sat, and by and by, the knot untied, or at least it disappeared. It wasn't there anymore. 
here I am, nearly 20 years later, telling people, you know what? That's a karmic knot untying. <laughs> and what's more, I believe it. I think it's true. I think that there are knots in our emotional system, in our spiritual system, in whatever system it is that's holding this organism together in some way, from who knows what lifetime, that are getting untied as we sit here, and that we're smoothing ourselves out. Every time we think we can't stand it, and we do stand it, every time we feel great pain, and it passes. Every time we feel rapture, and it runs through our body, and then that passes, I think we are transformed from the inside out. And I think the transformation holds. I thought I had an image right away, and I often have housekeeping images, but I imagined us as ironing out our wrinkles, that over time we are not only untying the knots, but we are ironing out all the wrinkles in our system. But I think that we iron them out for good when we iron them, that uh, the Buddhist way to say that would be every mind moment conditions the next. I had a teacher once who said to me, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. I love that notion. I think when we erase a wrinkle, it stays erased. And that one of my challenges in life is not to be scrunching up more wrinkles faster than I'm erasing them. So that calls for thoughtful, mindful living. And that's how I think it works. I think we get better all the time. And that we can't start with faith, but it develops. So I think that in all the years that I kind of made it a badge of honor to say, oh, faith is extra, you don't need faith, you just don't know. Because I didn't have enough faith. I didn't even have enough wit to know that I wanted it. I think on some fundamental level. When I was a child, I heard the phrase, perfect faith. And I filed it away and I didn't think about it. And I think perhaps all those years of saying, oh, you don't need faith, you just have to see, were a way of getting around the fact that I hadn't yet really discovered what faith was. But I think we grow into faith just as we grow into wholeness and clarity and wisdom. So we could sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 28, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.